Welcome to the Anchored by Faith podcast, a Reformed Baptist podcast where we hold to Scripture to be conformed to the image of God. My name is Colton Wright, and my co-host over here... Logan Batisti. And it's a wonderful, cold, dreary fall day. Actually, it's a pretty nice day today. Oh, yeah. I've definitely been looking at things, and I love how cold it is, but at the same time, I don't. Like, I, I miss soccer weather. This is absolutely soccer weather, but... It's never good to play soccer. Whatever. You're such a loser. You have to run. But at least you're, like, trying to score goals. I mean, it's fun to watch what the ball does in the air after you kick it. Never goes where I want it to go. It it goes the opposite direction. Well, get better then. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Well, I'll just stick to FIFA. Or whatever on the on PS4, play it on that because, I mean, I got picked. You know, you you know, in high school, when you picked teams, there was always that one kid that everyone was like, "Man, I got that kid." That was me. That was you. That was me. I was the kid that everyone was like, "Oh, great, it's Colton." Well, we know he can kick the ball, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um. I mean, soccer I was pretty decent at. I probably would have been better if I had practiced more, but it definitely was something that I was pretty. I had some pretty decent skills at. I've watched you do like the knee bop thing. I mean, that's pretty elementary, but I, I'm but I'm nowhere near as good as like the people. Who you, I tried to do that once and I like fell down. <laughs> so, right. Oh. How's, how's life been going for you recently? It's been going good. It's been going good. If you guys have been listening so far, uh, my son does not have two teeth, but he is keeping me up. Last night was a rough night. Does not have two teeth or does He, have d- he does have two teeth. He has more than two teeth now. I, I should say he has more than two teeth. He has been keeping us up. So if anything, uh, I'm going to ask for grace because we're drinking coffee right now and that's the only thing keeping me awake. Yeah, I mean, by the time we get to do this on Tuesday nights, it's already 9 o'clock, 10 <laughs> o'clock, and we're kind of starting to be old men over here. I mean, we should be, you know, asleep by now. At least normally I am, but not re- not for the past couple of days, but... Yeah, I wish I could say that. I've been reading... I've been trying to get in the habit of reading before bed. It's not been working out the best, but I'm a terrible reader, so I usually fall asleep as I'm reading. Yeah, I lost the habit of doing it in the morning. I'm I'm too lazy. I need to get better at it because <laughs> me and uh, my brother-in-law were talking about um, how we were struggling with sin and things like that. And I was like, well, there's things I used to ha- do out of habit. But mm-hmm. my problem is I haven't replaced those habits with good things to do. And I was doing pretty good at first. And then mm-hmm. the habit or like it never became a habit and kind of fell away. So I need to get better at doing that because I'm pretty sure both of us are really behind in our. Oh, I'm really far <laughs> behind. I don't know if you've been keeping track of me and our Bible reading plan. I'm I'm pretty far behind. I was like 11 days, so you're probably at like 14. I guess. 13. 13. 13. Okay. okay. I caught up two days today. You know, I'm doing good. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, Logan, how, how are you? How are things going? Things are going pretty good. Um, my daughter has almost 10 teeth now, which is crazy to think about. And she's getting so big. She eats a lot. She eats a ton. That kid uh, cracks me up. Yeah. <laughs> and then gets so... You should see her when she gets really excited. We're seeing, she'll move her arms 
and her mouth gets really big and wide open. I mean, it's just makes you smile, but it's, yeah. it's like, oh my goodness, kid, how much do we really eat? <laughs> it's such a little thing that can eat so much food. It's amazing. Yeah, it's she amazing. eats more than me and my wife combined sometimes, I'm sure. I have watched that, <laughs> that little girl put down food. It's it's amazing. Yeah. But, so we're we're sitting here on this fall evening, brisk evening, cold. And we have went through, if you've been following the podcast, we went through the T last week, mm-hmm. which was total depravity. Right, which basically sums up that we don't seek God because we want to follow our desires. We want to stay in our sin. Not because God forces us to, but because it's our choice because of our nature that's inside of us. That we do not do anything that seeks for God, but we fall in sin, or at least the natural man does. And I say we, because in a past sense, we were there as well. Mm-hmm. But as Christians, you're not under that nature anymore. God mm-hmm. saved you from it. You're not enslaved to your sin. We're a new creation. Right. We're a new creation. And so we probably, if you listen last week, there was probably little disagreement I mean, with the T, there's not much disagreement. Most most evangelical will uphold the fact of total depravity, maybe not to the severity. Yeah, I was about to say, it's definitely not to the length or intensity that we do, if intensity is the right word. Mm-hmm. They'll still say that you have the ability to respond to God in praise. Mm-hmm. So the the reason the T is so important, and why we, we start with it, is because without the view of total depravity that man is completely dead in sin unable to do any spiritual good uh, unable to seek god at all it leaves us in a very bad situation and that's where we come with today which is probably i mean we were talking earlier this is i mean you would say this is probably the most contested point of of tulip yeah i mean it's definitely probably the hardest one to swallow because, I mean, it really leads you in a state of God does this. I mean, that's why it's called unconditional election. There's mm-hmm. nothing you have to meet. There's nothing that is within you making this decision. It's all of God. Yeah, it's, I think, I'm trying to recall, I'm pretty sure that this was the point that I got hung up on for a while. Well, I mean, I think it's the main point that anybody who's dealing with Calvinism has to really go through. You come to this aspect of election and you're always told that you accept God in faith. Mm-hmm. Well, where does the faith come from? And most of the mm-hmm. time people assume that it's from faith inside of you, that it's your choice of accepting Jesus Christ as Lord. I mean, that's basically what we're told and what anybody given an invitation is. Mm-hmm. And not saying that we don't use those same terms because obviously grace is a gift mm-hmm. and the Spirit reveals to those who can accept. But, I mean, that's just what we say. Mm-hmm. I think uh, there's. You have to separate terminology on maybe what we think it means, I guess. It, does that make sense? I think so, so. Sometimes we perceive things have to be taken in one sense. So we say 
when we come to election. Um, well, maybe maybe let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail just yet. Right. So let's step back. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, the election, the concept of election. This is not a Calvinist thing. This is not a Calvinist topic. And this is a biblical topic. Yeah, I mean, I think you were just talking about a couple minutes ago. I mean, if you use Logos Bible app or even Blue Letter Bible, and I think even Strong's Concordance would have it written down mm-hmm. how many times. But it's used like almost 70 times within the Bible itself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's the two. Uh, I only did the, the, the Greek word study on the two words, the two the most common, right. which is eklatos and eklatoi. Um, eklatos, which is chosen or elect, and eklatoi, which is selection, choice, or election. Obviously, that's not the exhaustive meaning, but that is the general meaning throughout the text. Mm-hmm. So, eklatos is used the majority in the New Testament to paint this. I've heard it painted this way with Calvinism is, well, Calvinism believes in election. No, if you're a Christian, you should believe in election. It's a topic. We have to deal with it. Scripture speaks about it. I mean, if Scripture speaks of it 70 plus times, we need to to weigh those. And whatever our interpretation is needs to be driven from the Scriptures. Right. And it's not something that you can just toss to the side and say, you don't like this doctrine. Because it's something that's found throughout Scripture. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if we're really going to drive from the text and be Christians, we have to take what God's word uses and put it in front of Second Timothy, I think, that all scripture is God breathed mm-hmm. and used. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking. And then to complete the good man in mm-hmm. summarizing it, basically. Mm-hmm. It's all there for us to use to encourage us, to help us grow in our faith and knowledge with God. And I mean, election isn't something that, even though it becomes something divisive and has become something divisive, mm-hmm. it's something that God put in his word so that we could understand him better. Hmm. That's why we hope with this podcast, um, we hope that this podcast, it doesn't become a personality thing, but that whether you agree with us or you disagree with us, at least you go back to scripture and you, you look at scripture and say, well, I see what they're saying. Um, I may disagree with their interpretation, but I I see what they're saying, or at least drive you to Scripture so that you will study it. We have went to Scripture. We have studied it. This is what we have seen. This is what others have seen. This is a prominent view throughout church history. So just because it's foreign to you, don't repulse from it. Study it. If you disagree with us, please study it and you know, tell us why you disagree with it. And at least come to your own conclusions. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've listened to people like Stephen Lawson. We've listened to R.C. Sproul. Mm-hmm. We've listened to Leighton Flowers. Um, we've listened to Michael Brown. Mike Winger. Mike Winger. Yeah, I mean, there's. it's not like we're trying to do this based on what we've listened to from one person. Mm-hmm. We're trying to base it off what we've come through other people's and what we've done through our own studies in Scripture. Now, Colton might have had more time and probably studied a lot more than I did, unfortunately, but (laughs) we've done a little bit here and there, but I want you to understand that this isn't something we're trying to do off the cuff. Mm -mm. No, I, 
coming to this uh, today, I had a great burden because I know how contentious this point is. And so I want to like tread very carefully, but at the same time, if this steps on your toes or you disagree with us, please know that we're citing scripture. So don't disagree with us, disagree with the scriptures or or go to the scriptures and see why we're wrong, but but read them, mm-hmm. most importantly. And so we've talked about this term, election. You know, why don't we review a few verses, kind of paint a background so you guys can get a picture that we're not just saying these things, but this is, election is a biblical topic that we have to deal with. And so I'm using my NASB, Logan's using his ESV. And so the one distinction I I do want to point out first is if you hear the term chosen or elect, remember I gave you those Greek words in the beginning, eklatos and eklatoi, that chosen, elect, it's the same Greek root word. So it's the same word, it's just how you translate it. So if my translation, if, if you hear chosen or if you hear elect, notice those are the same Greek words or root words. All right, so let's start. In Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I love that, that the, he's predestined us in love. We, when it comes to this term election, so many times it is broken apart from the love of God. But the reason there is election is because of the love of God. Remember that T, that total depravity? We were totally dead in sin. Dead men don't talk. Dead men don't move. Dead men don't respond. Scripture belabors the point. I mean, if you don't think dead men do anything, Paul goes on to say, no one seeks for God. No, not one. So no one seeks for God. So if we can't seek for God, how can we get to God by God's love, God's pure love, who he elects a people? In Christ. So, not to harp on that too much, but it, it I mean, just a beautiful point. But uh, Romans 8.33, really, I'll start in Romans 8.28 and then read the 33. For, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Sorry, that's Romans 9. Whoop, whoop. Back up. Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. I mean, that's a beautiful, beautiful picture there. It's all this this working of God, and if God's doing all the working, then who can bring a charge against any any of the elect? Right. I mean, it's not just God. I mean, it is just God, but it's not like humans. As we pointed out, it's not like humans are forced into doing their nature. It's not like humans are forced into doing their will. God ultimately removes his hand and removes his grace and lets humans go to where they're pointed. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. That's what we pointed to last week. Is like Hitler was bad. And I mean, it was because God let him do what he wanted. Mm-hmm. You And you have... With even Hitler, you have with Joseph Stalin, you have these individuals that are despicable, despicable, but realize that the only thing that separates you from Joseph Stalin is God's grace. And it's purely the restraining hand of God. I mean, the reason we can look at those people, those individuals, and say, man, they're so terrible, is because we can see God's hand to restrain, remove from that situation. Right. I think I was, I was listening to Jeff Durbin today in Apology Studios. They did a sermon series on Tulip. But he was talking about how people wish for stories of how God saved them from something terrible like drugs or mm-hmm. so on and so forth, whatever you want to put in there. And he's like, no, don't wish for that. You already have a great enough testimony because God's grace kept you from that. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really inspirational because, I mean, don't get me wrong, my testimony, I've definitely had struggles in it's not anywhere near as bad as others, but it's definitely not a goody two-shoes one. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just to think of how great it is that God kept us from doing things that we shouldn't. I love the Paul Washer analogy when he says there's more of an act of God in an act of God's power, a demonstration of his power, that he redeems one sinner then creates the entire world because he's actually taking when he creates, he's only he's creating out of nothing. But when he redeems a rotten sinner, he's actually purifying them, redeeming them, and bringing them back to what they should be. And if we are totally dead, then we need that. I mean, we can't respond. And we talked last time that it's, it's to your very core. I mean, I, I just want to stress that, that it's to your very core. This is not like a, a fleck that you have on your shoulder. Like, it's something you could do unintentionally and mm-hmm. just thoughts. I mean, you understand how you think. People f- flittingly mm-hmm. kind of go here, there, everywhere. And it doesn't have to be something that's very long. It can be something that's very quick. Mm-hmm. I think when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, and he takes the law and he applies it to its real standard, which is not just the external don't commit it, but it's to the very thought. You know, it shows how morally corrupt we are. That just the hate in your heart, you've already committed murder. You know, Ray Comfort doing his little you think you're a good person skit. I think it's great though, because it draws the fact of how really how bad we are. I mean, we take for granted, you know, we see Joe Osteen and we say, well, we understand their sin, but we don't take the severity of sin. 
we don't understand how far sin goes and how corrupt it is, that it actually corrupts all of man. And if it corrupts all of man, how can you make Charles Spurgeon use the analogy of, of pigs? How can you make a pig who eats slop all his days not eat slop? You have to change the very creature because he's a pig. He eats slop. It's what he does. Well, actually, I mean, that's what um, oh, Charles Spurgeon, there we go, mm-hmm. it was coming up. That's actually one of the illustrations that he uses is if you have a pig mm-hmm. and at one point you have the, a big bouquet of, or big banquet, not bouquet, mm-hmm. a big banquet of food on this side of the most delicious food you can think of. And then slop on the other. I mean, if you let the pig go, he's obviously going to go to the slop. But if you could somehow change that pig with the snap of your fingers into a man, where is the man going to go? It's going to go, or he's going, or she's going to go to the bank mm-hmm. banquet. You can go to the, the good food. But the man or woman knowing where he was, um, sometimes will try to go back and eat from the slop thinking that it's better. But in reality, it doesn't taste good to him anymore. It's not worth eating, mm-hmm. worth stomaching. And so he'll spit it back out. I mean, that's kind of a way that the change yeah. creation or change mm-hmm. spirit, new you're creation this, is inside of us. You're this new creation. You're something different than what you were. Right. And uh, this concept of election Another point to, to touch on is is Second Peter, Second Peter one ten. For therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So again, you have the concept of calling, which we'll definitely get into later, but you have this choosing, God choosing, God electing you. Some other verses. Just to skydive, quick little run through. I know this is, we're trying to keep this, you know, under an hour. And I know there's people out there who's like, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. But this is for our own lives so our wives don't kill us. Yes. But yeah. another common one is you look in Romans 9, and it's where Paul goes back to before. Um, Jacob and Esau were born and how mm. Rebecca went to the servant of the Lord and God tells her that or that the older is going to serve the younger. And so starting at Romans 9 verse 10. Mm. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Mm. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I. This was 
this was the nail in the coffin for me when it came to election because it wasn't just the Leighton Flowers James White debate, but that did have a lot to do with it. It was the objector. In verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man? Sorry, verse 19. Uh, will you say to me, why does why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over clay to make one from the same lump one vessel from for honorable use and another for common? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also among the Gentiles. And so, not to give in a big, long exegesis of Romans chapter 9, but you have the breaking of tradition there in the very beginning. You have Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. You have the election of Jacob, the younger brother, and the condemnation of Esau. And you know what I was kind of thinking? That tradition was broken even before Jacob and Esau, technically. I mean, Isaac technically yeah. broke it as well. Because... Yeah. Yeah, because of Ishmael. Ishmael mm -hmm. was the one who technically should have been the firstborn. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't the son promised. But mm -hmm. he technically was Abraham's firstborn. Yeah, he was. And so you, you had this this promised, this line, this, this selection, I guess you could say, of individuals. And it comes to the point that if you've studied Genesis... In any decent amount, you understand this. This hit me pretty hard. Jacob is not a good person <laughs> in Scripture, not not in the beginning of his life. He's he's not a good person. He's a deceiver. That's all he does. He steals his birthright. He lies. He cheats. He does whatever he needs to do to get where he's going. But God wrestles with Jacob. God actually restrains Jacob physically, literally, restrains him, beats him, wrestles with him. But what did he do to Esau? He did nothing. He left Esau to be Esau. There is no condemnation of Esau or no chastising of Esau. He simply lets Esau be Esau. And so... You have this breaking of the tradition. Upon the breaking of the tradition, you have the, you can call it the apostolic interpretation or apostolic application, which he recites back to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion upon whom I have compassion. Reciting to God what in the burning bush, he will do what he wants to do. And there's, there's no, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you say? I mean, there's nothing that we can do to stop God. I mean, otherwise, he's not God if we can stop him in some sort of way. And so, you know, the the illusion here is Jacob, before he was born, God had chose him. Now, if something 
the, the concept of Jacob and Esau really breaks this, puts a thorn in the side of this election, because it kind of drives the point that if you want to say, because there's there's two types of election. Do you want to go ahead and get into that now? Yeah, I mean, might okay. as well. So there's you have two different types of election. Let me rephrase that. We have two different stances on election. You have what's called the conditional election or the unconditional election. Obviously, you know which one we're on. We're in the unconditional election. But what is conditional election? Conditional election states that if, uh, or that God looks maybe down the corridors of time, sees who will have faith, and thus elects them, or there is something within the individual, there is a condition that needs to be met in order to become elect, such as faith, or I would say pretty much everyone just says faith. You have to have faith in order to be of the elect. Maybe the better way to put it is to set Jesus Christ as Lord. Might be a good way, yeah. Because, I mean, obviously we're going to say you have to have faith in Jesus Christ too, but the where faith comes from is kind of different, I guess, from the TV points. But don't let Stephen Stephen Anderson hear you say that. Right. Have Have you listened to any of his stuff? I haven't yet. Don't do it. Okay. <laughs> it's terrible. Anti lordship salvation stuff. That's scary. It's really scary. But anyway, but, you just you saying that made me think of that. <laughs> but I mean, I think that's a good way to put it that you yourself must accept Jesus Christ as Lord. Mm-hmm. And so. This this condition that's that's met. Um, so you have the condition, which is within you. You have to have faith, or accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then the unconditional, which says that there is nothing within you that God saw nor chose. That God chose you in eternity past, mm-hmm. purely out of love and and mercy. There there was nothing in you that caused God to say. You're a favorable, I want to use this funny term here, you're a favorable meat. You're a choice meat. There was nothing in you that was good. You were just as despicable as everyone else, and yet God chose you to have mercy upon. Now, so stating that, what condition, this this example in Romans 9, what condition did Jacob meet? Well, he didn't have faith. If you want to talk about election, which is Paul's point here, he's talking about election, so that God's purpose in election might stand. Now, when did he choose Jacob? It was before he was born. It's not when he finally, truly came to him after he wrestled with him. So this election is not on the person. There is no prerequisite in order to gain election. It's purely on God's mercy. That's why he cites Moses. I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So if the condition, if you're in the conditional camp and you say, for instance, that you have to have faith first, I sympathize with you, but chew on this for a second. I mean, is, you is, might as well just go with John 6, 4. Yes. I mean, that is, it. but, so do you will? Are you willing? Do you do you will to come to Christ? Because it says it's not on that him who wills or who runs, but on God who has mercy. 
So this election is not based on your will. It's actually based on God's mercy. And then the Apostle Paul cites Pharaoh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So you have a positive election, and you had a negative. You had a positive that he elected. He brought Jacob in for a purpose, and you have the same thing with Pharaoh, that Pharaoh for a purpose, and what is Pharaoh's purpose? To show whom he does not have mercy, and he does not have compassion. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So you have, he has mercy on Jacob, he hardens Pharaoh. You will say to me, why does he still find fault, and who can resist his will? I've heard this multiple times, and I think this is a good point. If you find yourself bringing up an objection at this point, you should check your interpretation. If you're if you're making the objection, if you're being the objector, you should check your interpretation. Because what Paul has said is obviously in your face. This is confrontational. You know, this is boom, right here, right now. If you are coming from this a conditional point, think about it. Up to this point, does the objector make sense? Because if you're saying you have to have faith, and it's up to you to have faith, ask yourself, can you make that objection from that position? Does the objector here make sense? Will you say to me for will you say to me then why does he still find fault? Well if it's on your conditional state the conditional state of your will, well it's not on God, it's on you. So you've taken the term that's now put on God, you've put it on yourself, and you really make null and void verses 19 and 20. You've taken the objector out of the equation. So I encourage you, if you're reading this, ask yourself, if you're coming from this from a conditional point, if you say that you have to have faith in order to be of the elect, then when you get to verses 19 and 20, does it make sense? Can you be, can someone raise that objection to you? Because if someone can't raise that objection to you, then your point's not right. Because they're raising this objection. And Paul gives, I, I actually believe this is an apostolic, and many people think that he doesn't answer it, and I think he does. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? I think that's an answer. I think the answer is, I'm God, or he, and Paul's not saying I'm God. He's saying, this is God you're talking about. Right. It's kind of like when God was answering Job from the whirlwind. I mean, who are you to question how things go? I mean, and God lists all these things. I mean, were you there when I created this? Can you catch this thing? The Leviathan? Can Yeah. There's just so many things that we don't understand because... We are not God. We don't have his thoughts, and his thoughts are different than ours, and his ways are different than our ways. I know it seems like just a wishy-washy way to come out, but it's the truth. I mean, you can't explain it any other way because we can't understand an omniscient God who is outside of time, Mm -hmm. who doesn't deal with time in the same way that we do because we're finite creatures. And we only know as much as we know. Mm. We don't know everything. But yet, 
God in one instance knew everything throughout all eternity. Can't even. He can't learn. He can't look yeah. down through mm-hmm. eternity and learn something through it. He already knows it all. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, this is one of the hardest parts that I have with people who say you have God looks through and makes it on a choice based on your condition. Mm-hmm. And they like, I've heard one person use the analogy of which chess player would you like to use? Would you rather see the one who's playing on both sides so that he can win? Or would you rather see somebody who's playing all the greatest masters of time and is staying 10 to 20 moves ahead? That's not a good analogy to use because in chess, you have to guess what the other person's doing. You have to stay moves ahead, but you're learning how the player moves with every game you play. Mm-hmm. When in reality is there is no learning for God. He cannot learn or else he is not omniscient. I am the Lord. I do not change. That is probably one of my big hangups. I mean, like you said, I mean, this is, because you can't separate election and foreknowledge. I mean, you, you can. I think, I can't remember who said it. You, you you have to make the distinction between the doctrine of foreknowledge and the doctrine of election, but they go hand in hand. You can't, you can, dis, you can clarify them, but they're inseparable. They have to be tied together. I mean, one always follows the other. And so because God foreknows, Therefore, he must predestine because he knows all things. If he takes in any sort of knowledge, then he doesn't foreknow. The foreknowledge isn't there. He doesn't know. He's learning. And so that was probably my biggest thing coming out of the traditionalist camp, I guess you could call it. Not Arminian. I, I don't. People like to throw around the term Arminian. I, I don't really think that's a, a good uh, classification. I mean, there are definitely some Arminians out there, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But I think most Southern Baptists would fall into that traditional camp, yeah. basically. And so the foreknowledge and the concept of foreknowledge, which simply states that God knows all things. I mean, we read, we read Romans, Romans eight twenty eight there. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So read Ephesians one. Read Ephesians one. So this foreknowledge, this concept that he knows ahead of time, he knows all things. So this this knowing, you you have this view called simple foreknowledge, which is let me discuss two views that that I've seen prominent that I can't really, oh I can't get behind the, the simple foreknowledge, which is that God looks down at the quarters of time, and he sees, you know, the actions of a free will man. And then he makes his choice of election based on that foreknowledge. The problem is, and I had this discussion with with an individual, and I asked him, I asked him, you know, about God's foreknowledge, and I said, "Does God know all things?" He said, "Yes, God knows all things." And I said, "Okay, does God?" I said, "Then I, I, we went on and on and on." And he said, "Well, let me give you this this example." He said. If you go out there and you pick a walnut up, God knows the walnut you're going to pick up. I said, absolutely, he does. I said, but 
can I choose a different walnut? And he said, yes. I said, so I can choose a walnut that God doesn't know? He said, yes. I said, that's not foreknowledge then. God either knows what I'm going to pick up or he doesn't know. There's no in-between. God can't know the general pile of walnuts. He has to know the walnut you're going to pick up or he doesn't have foreknowledge or he's veiling his foreknowledge, which comes into another term. And if God veils his foreknowledge or veils an attribute such as that, I think you get into a watershed. Or you get into Molinism, kind of. Or you get into Molinism, where you have this concept, for those of you that don't know, Molinism's kind of the third view in soteriology. Or another another view. Another view. Yeah. I mean, the kind of best illustration that I've seen, and I don't really know a whole lot, um, if you look up Jack Coltis, I think is a friend of mine on Facebook, and he's a pastor, I believe that he's a He's starting to believe in Molinism. I think that's the camp that he kind of resides in. But think Endgame, Avengers Endgame, and how... Oh, why can't I think of what his name is now? Doctor Strange uses the Time Stone to look through all the possible ways that the Avengers were going to go up against Thanos. And yet, however many there is, God chooses one. And that's the one that happens in kind of, hmm. and that's kind of the way that Molinism goes is that God has this middle knowledge mm-hmm. and kind of that uh, flows with which wow. one happens. Kind of really put in perspective. I never thought about that. Now, granted, guys, I don't know a whole hmm. lot about Molinism, and that might be the worst illustration in the world. I'm sure somebody could. Tell me differently. Yeah. Okay, I thought it was a good. I mean, I could be wrong. I've I've studied a little bit of Molinism, but it sounded really. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. For it made my... it really practical. <laughs> but I mean, I, I've heard William Lane Craig, which is probably the most prominent Molinist, state it, which is this concept of middle knowledge, where God created the best world feasible, given the known actions of free creatures, and. The concept that the Achilles heel of Molinism, and I've never heard an actual, and I've I've seen debates, and they bring this up, and they've never answered it. William Lane Craig hasn't either. So it's called the grounding principle, which is where does middle knowledge come from? Because if God is sovereign, and he knows, I mean, again, it comes back to the foreknowledge. If God knows all things, and God is sovereign... Why can he not create a world where no one would perish, where there would be no hell, where there'd be none of this? Because you could say, well, he's making the best possible world. But, you know, that doesn't really make much sense, given this nebulous middle knowledge that, well, to be honest, is not in Scripture and has no... It really finds its its basis outside of God, outside of God, period. God has to uphold to this. Anyway, I know we're going down a rabbit trail. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it's not completely a rabbit trail. I mean, it's still talking about election and things like that. And we obviously aren't always the best at giving introspective into other perspectives. And mm-hmm. we're trying to get better about that. 
but I mean, it's something that we need to put out there at least. I mean, yeah. it's not like our view is the only view that no. looks at this. No. We might believe it's right, mm -hmm. but there are definitely other views that you should at least give some considerable viewpoints yeah. towards. I always think if you're going to disagree with something, you should know why. Mm -hmm. Don't just listen to us and say, well, I side with you guys. No, go s listen to those people and say, okay, well, well, they make a good point here. They make a good point there. Oh, they made a bad, really bad point there. I mean, check it off. And so, I guess to circle back around about this election and foreknowledge right. and, and so on and so forth. I think, ultimately, a way to go put it of going back to the election is if we take a look at the 1689 London Baptist Confession in Chapter 5, you go to Section 3. God and His ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. I mean, ultimately, everything is for God's pleasure, mm -hmm. for God's glory. Mm -hmm. And I know it sounds really weird to say this, but it's ultimately all about God. I, that seems to be the big thing. <laughs> you know, he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He deserves a little bit of glory. I mean, section two before it says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably, and infallibly, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence. Yet by the same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. I'd like to touch on the two points that you brought up just real fast. You mentioned in the first one the means, because from our position, we get accused a lot. Um, about God not using those means. Or maybe people overlook that. God uses means to accomplish his end. So he uses the proclaiming of the gospel to call his people. And when we talk about unconditional election in particular, I've heard it mischaracterized as God sitting up there, and he's up, he's up, he's up at the gate of heaven, and before anyone's born, he's saying, you heaven, you hell, you heaven, you hell, you heaven, you hell. Boom, 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 boom. You know, song and dance. Whatever. That's not it. Absolutely not. I mean, for us to say that God would arbitrarily do anything is almost pushing sinful. Yeah. Because, I mean, God doesn't do anything without planning. I mean, God preordains things. I mean, God has a plan mm -hmm. and has a decree and a will. I think the the best example. I mean, you really don't get a better example than the cross of Christ. Absolutely not. I, I mean, mean, you have you have before the foundation. He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So that that states that before the world was created, he knew what he was going to have to do. He knew before the world was created that Christ was going to die on the cross. So. Before the world ever came into existence, all those actions, everything, all of history, well, I would say that all of history points to the crucifixion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, yeah. God was not surprised by Adam and Eve's first sin. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's maybe a tough one to swallow for some people, but he knew. He knew they were going to fall. 
he knew the plan and already had a plan mm-hmm. to redeem all of us. Genesis three fifteen, or know. at least redeem the elect. I guess yeah. all of us isn't the right term because we don't believe that all will be saved. We're no. not universal. No, but he had a plan in order to redeem the elect. Yes, and so you know this this concept of election. If you're still struggling with it and you're in the other camp, one point that I'd like to bring up is we pretty much all universally agree that Israel was God's elect, right? It's God's chosen people. And so uh, I pose, you know, is it fair that God chose Israel over other nations? Because he didn't reveal himself to, you know, Egypt the way he did Israel. He gave himself uniquely to Israel. And he didn't do it to Egypt. So it's not, you can't say it's unfair for God to choose Israel over Egypt. It was an act of love and grace and mercy for God to choose Israel and to redeem them and to bring them, to make them a great nation. And it was all of God doing those works. Right. And I mean, why did God even start off and choose with Abraham? Yeah, there was nothing in Abraham. No, I mean, Abraham had two other brothers, right? Yeah. That God didn't choose. God chose Abraham out of them and took him out of a pagan nation mm-hmm. to follow him. And so this, if you're struggling with this election, I think that, you know, the confession of 1689 puts it really well mm-hmm. and great. You know, we've, we've said, again, we don't hold to tradition, but we do believe that these are men that have reflected upon Scripture. They have they have studied Scripture. They have soaked this in, and they have formulated this. And we should we should take what they believe with. What am I trying to say? We should look at what they believe and and take take truth out of it. Yeah, and kind of use it as a lens to look through, but mm-hmm. not as what it is itself. I mean, they kind of help formulate our thoughts, I guess is go. a good way to put it. Yeah. They help us to clarify and really look at Scripture. And then, what was that last section you read? I did two and three. I know two we're going to look at four, five, and six, I believe. So I'll do, uh, I'll do verse or section four here. Chapter five, section four. From the original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Hey, um, you're looking at chapter six, buddy. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I just wanted to go back. I thought that sounded a little weird. Yeah. Hiccup. Anyway, rewind that. Chapter five, section four, take two. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that he determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall, and for all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and not and not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth and otherwise ordereth and governeth, in a manifold dispensation to his holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth, only from the creatures, and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or prover of sins. 
So even though that sinful individuals do sin, God is not the author nor orchestrator of sin. It comes out of the nature of the individuals. So, total depravity. I mean, on that thought, let's go... I mean, you have to go in and tie in five to that. The Mm -hmm. most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sin, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that whose so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. I love it. Mine right here has the, uh, in the parentheses, Romans 8.28, which we, which we read already. And it just paints the picture that even though when we say unconditional election, it doesn't mean that you are somehow, you know, drug without the humanity aspect we our humanity is still intact you will still slip and fall but you've still with the analogy of the pigs you will go back to the slop but what's the difference you're still a new creation you go back to the slop you eat the slop but you throw it up because that's not who you are it doesn't taste good it doesn't taste good i mean it's not something that you want to stomach anymore and some people point out well there's still sins that I have as a Christian. And what we want to point to is that through election, God's creation is going to change you over time. He's going to sanctify you. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're as a Christian and you're the same way you were five years ago and maybe even a year ago and you're not changing at all, then you might need to look at where you're studying or what you're doing in your daily life. Because if you're not changing, if you're not being more, more conformed to the image of God's son, Mm -hmm. then you're definitely not doing something right as a disciple Mm -hmm. of Christ. Because being a disciple of Christ is like getting hit by a 20-ton semi. Mm -hmm. If you stay on the road and get hit by the semi, you're not going to be able to get back up and walk normally. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you'd be disintegrated. Mm. But God's so powerful and so amazing. And if you're not changed by that, by the end of it, you might need to consider what's going on. Mm-hmm. I love the way Paul Washer puts that in his, in his uh, yeah. bolstering personality. Yeah, that was my uh, abbreviated version yes. of that. I love the way he puts that. I, Martin Lloyd-Jones had another wonderful example. You probably heard me say it once or twice. But it was a wonderful example about how... In England or overseas, not here in America because you you don't usually see small fences, but over there you see large fields with fences around them, and so large expanses with fences. So when we when we come when salvation happens, we are taken from the domain of Satan, this, this sinful domain over here, and we're put over here in the new field. Now we are divinely picked up and we're put into this other field. So we can't thus jump back over. But the two fields butt up next to each other. 
And so we can actually hear the call of our old master. We can walk up to the gate. We can walk up to the fence and we can hear the calling of Satan. We can hear the calling of our sin in that, in that field, in that pasture. And we want to go back to it. And it's a sinful action because we have a wonderful master over here. But we want to go back to that field, but we can't because we're in this one. Mm-hmm. And so God will keep us and save us. I mean, unconditional election is a wonderful doctrine that we should not shy away from. It's a absolutely humbling doctrine. Mm-hmm. I it's this was probably I think that's why we struggle with it a lot. That's why I struggle with it a lot. It is the most humbling because I mean it's nothing that we can do. Mm-hmm. It's all of God. I kind of like how Stephen Lawson puts it um, with Jacob and Esau, and he's like. I understand completely why God could hate Esau. Because Esau didn't want anything to do with God. He didn't love God. He didn't want God. And it, I know that there's times where a t- point where he wept over that he couldn't get his birthright. But he didn't realize that the birthright was God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't. He never sought God ever you know and we don't either and that's why when we, we paint that sinful state and you realize that how dreadful we are what Christian at the end of the day can stand back and say I did this I had enough faith I did this when you understand the sinfulness of your own heart and your condition you understand it had to have been all of God it couldn't have been me and us if it was God why did he choose me? Right. And to finish the quote, it's like, what leads the question that we should be asking is, why did God love Jacob so much that he did? Mm. Why did he Why did he love Jacob? Because we already pointed out that Jacob was just as sinful, did terrible things, and God got him back through Laban and other instances. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we don't deserve it. No. With our sinfulness, the first sin that we commit brings us death. Mm-hmm. And yet God gives us grace to let us live through that. Grace and mercy and grace and mercy. And and to quote Paul Washer again, because he's just so good. You know, there's God. It's God extends such grace and mercy with one hand. But yet the other hand, he holds back judgment. And one day both hands will fall. But he's he's holding back that grace and mercy. Or he's, he's, he's holding back that judgment and he's extending grace and mercy. And he's extending that grace and mercy to us, to us, the elect. That There's nothing within us. There's nothing that you brought to the table. No one, when standing in front of the throne of God, can say, like the Pharisees, Lord, thank you for not making me like the, the sinner. Thank you for not making me like this. But what, what, what made the sinner unique is he beat his own chest and he hung his head down in shame because he understood his position in front of God. Yeah, like Isaiah does in his throne room scene in Isaiah 6. He's before God and the angels, and seeing that holiness makes him realize how woefully of a position he's really in. Mm -hmm. He says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. And so... I mean, coming off that 
coming off that, that tie from Isaiah, uh, a lot of times in this camp, in this uncon- unconditional election, we get accused of if God just chooses people randomly. I, just, I know we've kind of settled this, this mischaracter a little bit, but God, if God chooses people randomly, you know, why evangelize? I know, I'm sure you've heard that accusation. Yeah, been accused of it. I mean, and don't get me wrong, I am not the best at evangelism, and I know that that's something I struggle with personally and need to be better at. But we are not hyper-Calvinists. We don't believe that we don't have to go out there and put the legwork in. We believe that we are called to witness to people. We are called to present the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is a way that we are doing that and something that we're using this to help as a tool of. But we are definitely called by the Great Commission, as you said in the last episode, or maybe the first one. I don't remember. (laughs) I don't remember either. But God calls us to tell of him to the nations. God calls us to be a lamp to the world, a light to the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're called to do. And election is even more reason to do that. Mm. And I really wish I could remember the way that Stephen Lawson put it because it was how God's sovereignty is like the octane gas in Paul's ministry. Oh, I haven't heard that. I've listened to a lot of Stephen Lawson. I haven't heard that. It was in the YouTube video you sent me today. I listened to it while I was working. I should re-listen to that. Yeah, but it was really interesting. It caught, obviously, I can't recall it, so some people argue that it didn't catch my attention enough. But it, yeah. God's sovereignty is the whole reason that we do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you read chapter 5, section 3 of the confession. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. He uses means. What are those means? Those means are the proclaiming of the gospel. Those means are the sending of his people. The means are his church. God has given us means to reach individuals. Now, God can use us despite those things, but he has called us to be those means. And God can call people in spite of us. Absolutely. But he's given us the calling to be the tools that he uses. I think it's the most beautiful thing. It really helped me in apologetics. I mean, unconditional election helped me in apologetics, which might sound weird to say, but I realized that it's not on my arguments. I don't have to worry about checking every box. All I need to do is stand on God's word and let God do the work. Right. Absolutely. And when we're preaching, it's not, yes, we're faithfully called to teach the word, but even if I mess up, God still has a way of working through it. It could be the most common way of saying something, but it would hit a person to make them cry. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another thing from Jeff Dunham's sermon today. Dur- Durbin. Or Jeff Durbin. Not Dunham. <laughs> yeah, wrong person. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff Durbin. <laughs> God definitely uses different things to impact us, mm-hmm. but it's God in the end. We could be the ones who water, we could be the ones who plant, but God is the person who makes things grow. Absolutely. He is the increase. He is the one that causes the means. It doesn't matter if you water, you know, I'm a landscaper. 
irrigation technician at that. So I know that you can dump as much water as you want on soil. And if there's no seeds in that soil, if there's no one that has planted that soil, then it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to grow. And if you've planted bad seed in that soil, it's not going to grow. So, you know, all those things have to work together. It can't just be one or another or another. All have to work together. And how does that all work together? Through God. And his timing and his grace and his mercy. And we are called to be faithful. We're called to disciple the nations. We are called to evangelize. We are called to teach, to preach, and to exhort. Exhort. There you go. Amen. And that's what we're called to do. And those are the means by which God calls his people and sanctifies his people. And if we sit on our hands and say that we're not going to do those things, I think that, yes, God can still call his people, but it's a judgment against us. Not, I've said it in apologetics, I want to be the means by which God uses to bring someone to himself, and not the means in spite of. Because one day we will have to stand before the throne of God, whether you're believer, unbeliever. Believers, you will have to stand in front of the throne of God. And account for everything that you've done. Everything that you've said. Or didn't say. Or didn't say. And I know that book's pretty large for me. And I hope to make it, you know, not get any bigger. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do everything in my power to, to teach, proclaim the gospel and get God's word out there. Not because of anything else, but the fact that I love God. That I mean, that should be the most important thing. I love God, and I want other people to know that. And I understand that it's only God's work that can save these people. And only God's work that caused me to love him. Mm-hmm. And so, why evangelize? Because God says so. You know, unconditional election doesn't take away from evangelism. Um, I think Jeff Durbin said, if unconditional election... He didn't say it in these words, but he said, "If essentially, if unconditional election isn't true, why evangelize? If God is trying 100% to save somebody, what can you do? I mean, if, if God's trying and you're trying, you know, are you more powerful than God? Can you convert somebody even though God's trying to save them? You know, what? how can you alter the will when God's already trying all that he can. You know, this isn't, I've heard the really bad character, you know, God casts a vote, Satan casts a vote, and then you cast a vote. That's not true, guys. But anyway, another rabbit trail. But essentially, evangelism, we are called to evangelize. Unconditional election really solidifies evangelism. If you believe in unconditional election, you should evangelize even more. Because you understand that no matter how far someone is, how far someone is out there, God can save the most despicable person because he is God. And because of God has called them an eternity past. I mean, God's already working in that person. God's already using his spirit to call that person, to draw them in. You literally are just the means to do that. Mm-hmm. 
you're putting your faith in God to do what he says he'll do. Evangelism is just looking into his promise that he's going to draw the person in, that he's going to be the one to make them grow. And you literally just have to proclaim who God is and what God has done in your life. That's it. That's literally it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're literally just teaching what Jesus has taught you is the way that it's put. Yeah. You, you've taken everything out. You've taken, you've wiped the table clean and you've said, it's just God. It's just God. And this unconditional election allows me to, it hum, I mean, for me, it humbles me to go into any circumstance and know that as long as I'm standing on God's word and proclaiming his word, he will use that to draw his people. And it's not on, well, you know, that person, he's lived a pretty bad life. And, you know, I just don't know. It was too far gone. You know, his, he really doesn't want God. Well, it doesn't matter what he wants. If God has chosen that man for, or woman, for salvation, he will bring it about. And it's my job to go to that person, proclaim the gospel, and hopefully watch the spirit work. And that takes our personalities out of the situation. And it's monergism. Yeah. I think monergism, not to use our arguments, but that in spite of our personalities and through our personalities, God worked. It's just hard to unpack, but so amazing at the same time that God uses us in spite of ourselves. Yeah. You think of the Apostle Paul, who, you know, God didn't ask the Apostle Paul to follow him. We think of the Apostles. They followed Jesus. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Christ chose them. But yet, he says, I chose you, but yet one of you is still a devil. Judas, he knew who Judas was. He knew who he was the devil, but he still chose them. He chose those individuals. And when you realize that there was nothing within you that God saw that was worth redeeming, there there was nothing, there was not, it was not your personality. It was not your platform. It was not your money. It was not your cars. It was not your, you name it, your appearance. None of that is important to God. None of it. It's all his mercy. It takes your legs off and it makes you stand and look at God and say, wow, you are a loving and just God that you would take someone like me and despite all my flaws, and despite all my pitfalls and my sins and the sins I will commit, the sins I have committed, you've taken all those despicable things and you've said, my son's going to pay for all that and I'm going to draw you to me and you're going to come to me and I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you a new creation. I'm going to make you something despicable. You were something despicable. I'm going to make you something beautiful. And you realize it's not on your shoulders. It's all of God. And that, to me, there's nothing sweeter than that. There's really not much else to say about it. I mean, that that really clearly paints the picture is because God is so gracious. Mm -hmm. And I know that 
people aren't going to say that and point to the fact that why does God just save a particular people? Mm-hmm. But I mean, God doesn't even deserve, or God didn't even need to save a particular people. Mm-hmm. Technically, all of them were needed to be punished mm-hmm. and needed to be judged by death. Mm-hmm. You, I've. Uh said several times if when you when you take the t this is why this is all important the t the total depravity if we're all dead in our sins and trespasses the universal result is the wages of sin is death we deserve death not just physical death but eternal death we deserve hell we deserve absolute punishment so the one thing you don't get from god is injustice you either get justice or grace now if you say it's not fair no, it it's definitely fair. It's God's grace. Grace, by definition, cannot be merited. Grace cannot be demanded. Grace must be grace. It must be given freely. If it, grace is not given freely, it is no longer grace. So if grace is given universally, it's no longer grace. So grace, by definition, is restricted. It must be. So if grace is restricted... When God gives grace to an individual, what does he give to the other person? He gives justice. Those that God doesn't choose, the, of the, the ones that aren't the elect, they receive justice. That's, it's kind of just one or two. Um, and we'll get into that more when we get to the limited atonement part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're coming up on like an hour and 16 minutes now, so <sighs> I think... I better just try to cut us here and try to make sure we get back on what we were talking about. Because we dipped into limited atonement. We dipped into irresistible grace. A little bit, yeah. It, yeah and we, all this... all this It really it boils really, in together. It really does. Argument. But I want to leave... I mean, let's kind of look back. I'm going to read from John 17... 20, okay. which is this high priestly prayer. And a lot of people will point this is towards the apostles. But I want to read in verses 20 onwards, because this is talking about future apostles. This isn't talking about just the disciples that Jesus says. So, in verse 20, And do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be given in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because the world does not know you. I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know, made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Just that part even says here, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. The giving of the Father. You have the, the, the people given to the Son. Right. And I think that's something that people miss sometimes is that 
the father gives the elect to Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus says that he will not lose them. I shall not lose one, but I will raise them up on the last day. And this, these people that come, these people that are, that are given to Christ, you know, this is the beautiful, that's why election is so sweet, is it you've been given by the Father in eternity past to the Son as a love offering. I mean, it's a beautiful thing, a love offering. You've been given to the Son. The Son has purchased you with his very blood, and you will come to him. I know that's getting off, but you've been given to the Son. There was nothing within you. There was no conditions met. There was nothing. None of the disciples or apostles met any X requirements. It was completely an act of God's mercy and God's grace. And... I understand that to some people, this might sound like it's hopeless. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing that a person could do, and it might feel like they're kind of being left to the wayside, that they can't even be chosen. Or you maybe have people that say, you know, how do I know if I'm chosen, or how do I know if I'm not chosen? And I think that Scripture speaks very clearly to believers. I think that's why we have those warning passages. I think that's why we have many of the epistles. You know, you have those lines drawn in the sand. You should examine yourself and how do you know if if you're of the elect or you're not? Um, well, in the end, it's really you and God. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you know? Do you love God? I think R.C. Sproul put it very very bluntly, do you love God? If you can answer yes to that question in any remote sense, and I don't mean a God, I mean God, the God of Scripture, the God of, you know, the Bible here. If you can answer yes to that question, then I would say, absolutely. And you should you should follow him. And so that love of God does not come within you. It's a It's given by God. Remember, the natural man, the T, is hostile to God. He cannot, you know, he cannot do anything spiritually good. He does not want God. No one seeks for God. Are you seeking for God? Do you seek for God at all? Do you love God? If you've answered yes to any of those questions, then the question shouldn't be, am I of the elect? The question should be, why are you not growing in your faith? Why are you not pursuing God? What is in your way of pursuing God? Get those things out of the way. Pursue God. And it's definitely something that I struggled with the same thoughts of before. I mean, I struggled with, I'm not changing. I don't feel like I'm a new creature. So is God just not electing me? But in the end, it's having faith in God that he's going to justify you, that he's going, or that he has justified you, that he is sanctifying you. Mm-hmm. to conform to the image of the Son. And you're not going to be able to do that without looking into Scripture, going to church, being with other believers, mm-hmm. and using the means that God has given you Amen. to continue to pursue that relationship with God. Yeah. Because there are means besides salvation that God has given you to sanctify into the image of His Son. Yeah, I think we we boil it all down to salvation and it's an error. 
absolutely. It's a disregard for what scripture says mm-hmm. if we just leave it at the altar and that's all it is. Yeah, this is uh, unconditional election. Election in general does not appeal simply to salvation. It it does. You know, that might be the cornerstone, but there's other stones in there. And that's the Christian's life. It's it's their walk. It's everything. And God has given those means. He's given his church. He's given his bride to, you know, to be a part of. And if you are cutting yourself off from that, from the means by which God uses, you're starving yourself. You are withering yourself. You need to be in the body of Christ. You need to be a hold of those means. You need to take a hold of those means because God didn't call us to be solo Christians. And even, and not just listening to podcasts like this or sermons online, you need to be in a physical body of believers. Yeah. Of faithful believers. You need to be around those who obviously aren't perfect. But our faithful to God's word is definitely the case yeah. that has to be made because they're the ones who go- are going to push you to be faithful to the scripture. Now, will both you and them mess up? Absolutely. But you can count on them to faithfully point you back to God and faithfully point you back in your walk. Mm-hmm. The disciples, they went out two by two. What was the purpose in that? Because you're not supposed to do this alone. Never supposed to do this alone. If we were supposed to do this alone, I guess you could say we would be robots, but we're not. God has given us those means. And if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast and this is your soul, I mean, I'm not saying that we are, obviously, we're, we wouldn't be someone's soul spiritual food. I hope uh, not. I hope not. But if you're spiritual, if, you, if you're being fed from an online source, Online is one of the most wonderful things to get the gospel out and teaching out. And I have used it. And it's a wonderful thing. But if, you, if you're if you not plugged into the local body, you're, you're doing a disservice. You must do life with the body of Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that is really just a great point to end on is that Unconditional election doesn't mean you leave off at single. This is definitely something you need to work through with other people. Mm-hmm. Whether it be Calvinist, whether it be Reformed, whether it be Arminians, whether it be Provisionist, whether it even is a Molinist. I mean, these are all questions that we have to ask Scripture because it's in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And there are things we're going to have different interpretations on. But at the end, we really all believe that we're saved through God's faith. Mm. God's grace. Or God's grace, not <laughs> not God's. But we're saved through God's yeah. grace, through what Jesus Christ did on the cross and what his blood has done for us. Mm-hmm. Not because of the works that we have done, but because of what he has done for us. Mm-hmm. And that he uses that to blot out our sins our unrighteousness, and cleanses us himself. Mm-hmm. Not because of anything we do, but all because of him. Mm-hmm. And that's really what conforms us to the image of God. It's really what starts that whole process. 
but it doesn't leave us there at salvation, but continues us through working out our faith, working out our lives and doing good works. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it does. And so if you guys have really liked this episode, I know this is even longer than the last one, <laughs> but leave us a review on Facebook. Um, we even got a Twitter feed now. I noticed that. <laughs> but you can hear us on Podbean. You can hear us on Amazon. We'll work on getting Apple here maybe in the next week or two. Mm-hmm. But there's multiple places we are. Now we're trying to get out there and we're trying to get the word. So spread out there and leave us a review. Leave us a comment. Email us in an encouraging light if we're, if you have some objection that we've missed mm-hmm. and we'll try to get to it, but I can't promise anything because we'll, we're excited, but yeah. it's just tough to get to everything at some points in time. We're, st- we're still busy, but you know, if you, if you do email us, we'll definitely Definitely get to it eventually. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I feel really bad for saying that, but we definitely want to encourage people to read their scriptures and just to, get in the word. Yeah. To get in the word is basically what the point of this get in, is. Get in the word and get in the body. Right. So thanks again for listening to us today. I'm Logan. And I'm Colton. Thanks for being with us, guys. God bless. God bless.